We're going to finish this series off in the last four chapters of Paul's letter to the Ephesians. And so uh, if you didn't bring your Bible, that's fine, uh, because I have the, uh, the Scripture on the screen behind me. Uh, but allow me to uh, read from God's Word, and then we will expound on uh, what, uh, what Paul is saying here. So this is what uh, Paul wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. I therefore, prisoner for the Lord urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions of the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, the teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood and to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of Doctrine by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, for whom the whole body joined, uh, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Well, when I was very young, uh, my family planted a tree in our, in our front yard. Uh, we loved this tree. We loved it for many reasons. We loved it because in its prime, it was the perfect uh, complement to uh, this beautiful maple that we had in the middle of the, the front yard. It, and we loved it because it provided shade for the yard and helped provide uh, shade on the house as well. And we loved it because we planted it as a family and we were able to watch it grow and, and, and grow it. it. It certainly did. I don't know what kind of tree it was, but it sure seemed to grow uh, very quickly. But little did we know that that growth was actually the problem. One day a strong storm uh, came through uh, our, our town and, and when we came out of the house, one of the first things that we noticed was that this, this tree that we loved so much had, had toppled over under the stress of the storm. And that was really sad because here is this tree that we watched, we, we planted, and we, we watched it grow, and we enjoyed it, and now it had to be chopped up and, and mulched. Why did that tree fall? I mean, it, it had grown, and it looked so healthy, but it had, it had all the signs of growth, but inside it was, it was immature. It grew, but it really, it really didn't grow. You know, we think the same about our children. When we, when we see our children growing up, we, we often think about our, their, their stature. They're, they're physically growing. We've said a, a number of times to our children now, when in the world did you get so tall? Like, how did that happen? Like, sometimes overnight they'll come upstairs and we'll be like, what happened? Like, did you grow overnight? 
You know, and that's normal and that's natural. It's why doctors have growth charts for them when they go into well child visits. You know, if they, they want to see if they're growing properly and in and, and, and health, and that, that's good because if they're uh, not growing in the way that they're supposed to, then that's an indication that something may indeed be wrong and some interventions may need to, uh, uh, to, take, to take place. Um, but just like the tree in our front yard and children who grow physically, um, oftentimes they, they lack the internal maturity, uh, the internal growth that should come as they grow older. I've met many, many uh, people who are adults physically, but in reality they're, they're children in maturity. And just like our tree and some children, there are some churches and individual Christians who uh, may have been around for a long time, but they're still in their spiritual infancy. Individuals who may have been Christians for, for decades but have not yet grown in maturity. There are churches that have thousands in attendance, but they are immature in their, their doctrine. They're a mile wide, but they're an inch deep. Such churches and Christians are, are not only ready to get blown over when uh, storms of life or crisis hits, but are also targets of the enemy, the devil, who wants nothing more than to persuade them with plausible-sounding doctrine and arguments in order to lead them astray. Well, if you're new to Emmanuel, if this is your first week, or perhaps uh, you were here on uh, Christmas Eve, um, we're, this is an exciting time to be part of Emmanuel because we are um, looking at remodeling our church, not physically, but, but spiritually. Uh, and a big chunk of how we're doing that is in our sermon time. Uh, we've been working through what a biblical church is. And first, we, we, we looked at the foundation of the church, what is the theological roots of who we are. And then for six weeks, we looked at the pillars or the purposes of the church. Like, what makes us be who we are? What should we be about? How can we live lives or have a church that is pleasing in our purpose? And now here we're going to look at the last three chapters of uh, the letter of Paul to the Ephesians. And we're going to see how, how that foundation and how those pillars work themselves out practically into our everyday lives uh, as individuals and as, as a church. And uh, what I mean by that is that we need to be a church that grows. Not a church that grows with, uh, as many people have, have said to me before, we just need more butts in the seats. That's not the kind of growth we're looking for here. We're looking for growth in, in depth. We want growth that, uh, that when the storms of life hit our church, that we can meet the challenge, that we can rise to them, and that we can stand strong. Our goal is found in verse 13 of our text today, is to attain the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to be the measure and stature of the fullness of Christ. So how are we to do that? How are we to grow up in the Lord? And there's three things that we find in this text. The first is, is that we need to live out the gospel. We should live out the gospel. If we want to be a church that pleases God, then we need to be uh, individual members of it uh, that are committed to living out the gospel of Jesus. This is what Paul is, is urging the members of the church of Ephesus to pursue. Look in verse 1. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. 
The phrase walk in a manner is, is, is obviously a metaphor, but uh, it points towards how we go about every aspect of our everyday lives. It points to living in Christian integrity in the workplace and in the neighborhood and in our homes and indeed even when we are all by ourselves and no one else is around. And since Paul urges this, we must see it as extremely important. A commitment to living out the gospel uh, is paramount. I'm not sure that there's anything uh, on this side of redemption that is more important than our growth and our knowledge of Jesus Christ and living out that faith that we profess in integrity. But how are we supposed to do this? How are we supposed to grow in this? Well, that's what Paul answers now in verses 2 and 3. He says, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. So for us to live in integrity, for us to live it out, there are five things that are good starting points. This isn't an exhaustive list by any means, but it certainly is a good start. First, humility is, is a really hard one. Typically, if you want to grow in something, uh, some area of your life, you put a measurable uh, goal, and then you put action steps uh, towards getting towards that goal. But how do you do that when it comes to humility? Like, how do you get to the point where you've said, man, I have worked really hard, and I finally nailed this humility thing? You can't. It doesn't work that way. Perhaps you can go to someone that you know that you trust and you can ask them, would you say that I'm a humble person? And they might say, why, yes, I do think you're a humble person. Well, how are you going to react to that? (laughs) I knew it. Yes. Nailed it. Because you can't. That is the nature of humility. And perhaps the best way to to think about it is how C.S. Lewis described it in his book, Mere Christianity, where he says that humility is not thinking less of yourself, it's, it's thinking of yourself less. That's a great sentence, that humility is not thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less. And perhaps Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 through 4, is the mentality that we need to get into when Paul writes, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. But in humility, count others as more significant than yourselves. Let each of you not look only to his own interests, but to the interests of others. So we need to be growing in that, but notice also that we need to be growing in gentleness. When someone says or does something that's not quite to your liking, how do you respond? Are you angry? Are you irritable? How would you, how would you, uh, how do you interact with your spouse or your children? Are you considered gentle? Or are you considered harsh? There's certainly a difference between firm and, and gentle. But, you know, which one are you? Not sure? Try asking someone. Because when you do, one of two things will happen. You will learn that your tone and your mannerisms don't always come across to other people in the way that you think they are because you only hear what's inside here. You don't see the uh, nonverbal communication or you don't pick up on those tones. So you may learn something about yourself. Or second, you might find out how gentle you are when they tell you how gentle you are not. 
And that takes some, some self-perception and figuring that out when, you, when someone tells you something that you don't want to hear. Third notice, patience. Who doesn't need more patience? Are you able to um, accept difficulties uh, without getting upset or annoyed? I am keenly aware of my impatience in driving, and it's getting worse as, as I get older. I remember a time when, when our kids were, were very, very little, and, and something happened where someone was not going as, uh, as quickly as I normally would have wanted them to be, and I hear the sweet voice coming from behind me, come on! What are you doing? Get moving! Wow, I wish I had taught them well, but unfortunately they, they learn from example truth is, I need more patience. You need more patience. We all need more patience. And along with that comes bearing with one another. And this has the sense of putting up with each other. Now think about, when you think about the church, like how could we not see that we are a church filled with people from different backgrounds, uh, different ethnicities, uh, different experiences, uh, different um, temperaments, uh, different socioeconomic backgrounds, though, you, though we're united in the faith, my goodness, are we different people when we come together. And sometimes when we have all those differences, sometimes they, 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 they can clash. But the question is, um, can we bear with one another when they do something that might annoy you or do something that you might not like? Can you set it aside and let it go? Are you able to love someone in spite of their, their flaws or maybe not even their flaws, but their personality quirks that might not, uh, might not jive with you that well? Um, it's easier said than done, but if we wanna grow as, a Christian, as Christians and have a church uh, that has the spirit of peace that's prevalent, we have to bear with one another. And finally, notice Paul says that we should be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Now, I said this a number of, of weeks ago, but it's worth saying again that Christian unity isn't something that can be created or manufactured. It's something that the Holy Spirit has already made. It's already available to us. Our job is to maintain. The car is already built. We just have to keep up with the scheduled maintenance. We have to get those oil changes. We have to rotate those tires. We have to do those things that are on the maintenance schedule in order to keep with what is already there. We're to bear with one another who are different because we're already unified in the gospel. And this gospel, Paul tells us in verse 4, is that there's one body, one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. And we certainly don't have time to go through all of that. But the point is, is that we have a common faith that should supersede any difference that we have that we should be able to put aside our differences and be able to link arms together in the battle of the gospel to go forth into a world and proclaim Christ who doesn't know him. And so how is it that striving toward humility and gentleness and patience and putting up with one another uh, and maintaining the unity works toward walking in a manner worthy of the Lord? Because these are traits of the Lord. The Lord is patient. The Lord uh, is, is humble 
And we seek to be patient. We seek to be humble because Jesus is. And so, friends, if we want to be a church that grows, we need to live out the gospel by striving to be more like Jesus. Second, a way that we grow is we serve. We serve. Uh, if, if Christian growth and maturity can be defined as becoming more and more like Jesus, then we ought to be about what Jesus was about. And Jesus gave us a little bit of a, a, a window into what his purpose was in Matthew chapter 20, verse 28, when he said that the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And so if that's true, then as members of the church, we are to find ways to be able to let go of ourselves, to let go of our agendas, and to find ways in which we can make Jesus known in our service here in the church as well as in the community. Now in verse 7, Paul writes something that seems very, very random, but I promise you it's not, and we're going to get to that here in just a second. He says, grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Now, we ought not to confuse what Paul is saying here. In talking about this grace that is given, he's not talking about saving grace. When he says grace was given to each one, he is talking about a grace which empowers every individual Christian to serve the church and the world in a particular way. It's often referred to as, as spiritual gifts, and it, it uh, will take quite a while to break down the theology of that, but for now, let's just assume it. Christ has empowered us with abilities and talents and skills and experiences and so forth with the sole purpose to edify the church and to serve a world that desperately needs to know who Jesus is is whether or not you know it if you are in christ you are spiritually empowered to serve him in one or many different ways and these gifts that christ showers his church with are the uh, the result of his victory and ascension into heaven in verse 8 paul quotes psalm 68 to back up his claim he says therefore when he ascended on high he led a host of captives and gave gifts to men now, if you were to thumb all the way back to Psalm 68, you don't have to do that, but you would see that Psalm 68 is, is a victory psalm in which God is seen as this, this mighty conquering warrior that, that puts his, his enemies away. And uh, this, this image here is one of a general who is returning from, from his battle to his hometown. And in the ancient Near East and both in the Roman Empire, this happened, that when the general was coming to his, his hometown, he would often have a parade that would meet him outside the town to usher him in. And when he would come, he would have the captives that he took from war uh, generally tied up together, somewhat on a, on a leash, if you will, and uh, he'll also have the spoils of war with him. The captives he had would become slaves, and the gifts that he would have, the spoils or the booty, if you want to call that, he would pass out to the, the people at the parade so that they would get gifts from this victory that this Roman general or, or the general from the ancient Near East um, would give out. And so the psalmist applies the image to God who would one day be victorious over his enemies and would scatter all these gifts 
out to his people. And now Paul picks that up and he applies it to Christ, that the battle started when Christ descended onto earth and took flesh at Christmas time. The battle ended after his resurrection uh, and into and through his ascension. And this is essentially the, uh, the commentary that Paul gives in verses 9 through 10. But now in his enthronement, he is passing out the spoils of war to his troops. Those of us who are in, are in Christ. These are the gifts. They're given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's uh, gift. Now, perhaps you don't know what your, uh, your gift is or how you could fit it in. And let me tell you, there's no lack of way to serve Jesus. And one thing I would recommend is just trying something. If it doesn't work out, it's not your bag, move on to something else. Or we have spiritual gift inventories here too that could tell you very much of where your passions might be and where you might fit in well with serving. But the, the point is, is that we, we, we got to serve somehow. We have to grow, and growth has to happen through service. So why then does, does Paul put this in here? Because it seems rather random, doesn't it? But if we connect it now to the previous verses, we find that Paul wants us to understand the difference between unity and diversity within the church. He says that there is one body, one spirit, just as you were called to one hope uh, that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father over all who is in all and, and through all and, in, and over all. But because we are one body, we are separate parts. Some of us are our hands. Some of us are our feet. Some of us are our muscle. Some of us are armpits. I know that's weird, but they're very, very important for the human body. And so we all have a different place in which we need to, to be. Um, it is God's glory that we are not all eyes or ears or noses, because then we wouldn't be very productive. We'd, we'd hear a lot, but we wouldn't be able to move. We'd see a lot, but we wouldn't be able to go anywhere. And as it is, we are unified, yet we are very diverse in how we serve Jesus. Paul mentioned some other gifts here that were distributed to the church as well, and they're very important because they, they train the various parts of the body to do what they're supposed to do. Think about them as occupational or physical therapists here. They, uh, verse 11, he, he uh, gave gifts, gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body, and so there's this progression, notice, that the church is founded on by the apostles who are working off of the work of the prophets. And now the evangelists have taken up that baton. For 2,000 years, evangelists have gone out winning souls, preaching the good news of Jesus near and far. And as these people believed, they have been organized together in uh, micro-units called churches. And these churches are led by shepherds and teachers. Now, what I am about to say is very uncomfortable for me to say. But if we want to get at what the text is saying, then I have to say it. But no, I'm not promoting myself here. I'm promoting the office. But according to this text, pastors, elders, and teachers are God's gift to you. I'm not saying I'm God's gift to anybody, but the office is 
the office is God's gift to the church because they've been supernaturally empowered to train others to do the ministry. The pastor's job, the elder's job, is not to be the one who does everything. The pastor or the elder's job is to train the membership to do the work of the church. I said it a few weeks ago, but it, it, it's, a, it's a helpful illustration that when I interviewed as the associate pastor, one of the questions was, you know, what are one of your goals for the job? And I said, well, my goal would be to work myself out of a job. This is exactly where it comes from. As ministers of the gospel, we are to train people so that they can go ahead and take the lead in it. When we go and do uh, international missions, the goal is to raise up indigenous pastors to lead their individual churches because pastors are to train the church to do the work of the ministry. And so now, of course, this isn't realistic uh, to think this is going to happen anytime soon um, or maybe until we get to glory. But Paul tells us, that the church ought to view the shepherds, the elders, the pastors, and the teachers as God's gift to them to take advantage of how they are pouring into you. This must continue. And Paul says in verse 13 uh, that until uh, we all attain the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Uh, it is God's will then that as a church we, we train and we serve and we, we soak up like a sponge and then we, we wring out and pour out that sponge into the church and into the world for the glory of God and service of the gospel. And so friends, the, the, the opportunities are really quite endless. The harvest is ripe and the workers are few. If we want to be a church to grow in depth, every one of us has to find a way to plug in. And the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. And that should be our mantra as a church as well. And so we need to serve. But finally, number three, we need to be a church that grows up. And I don't mean that offensively. I don't mean that in a derogatory sense. I'm just like, grow up. No, we just need to, we need to grow up into Christ. Uh, verse 14 provides the reason why we need to become mature in our faith, both con congregationally and individually. Uh, he says, it is so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. And so Paul uses two negative metaphors here. Um, the first one, when he talks about children, we ought not to look at this in the same way that Jesus said, let the little children come to me. But Paul is using the, uh, uh, the gullibility of children as a negative thing here. Because children lack education and they lack experience in life, they will pretty much believe anyone that they see as an authority figure in saying something. And so, you know, if a child hears whatever, uh, they, they will, they'll simply believe it. Um, Christians can't be like that. We can't believe everything that, that, that has the Christian label on it. 
And notice also that we can't be like ships without an anchor, without weight in a stormy sea. Now, this is not hard for us Minnesotans to pick up on. Um, if you want a, a good experiment, and, and I don't, maybe this is smart, maybe it's not, uh, but on a really windy day, why don't you take one of those little tin can boats and go into the middle of Lake Mille Lacs and have the goal of staying right there in the middle of the lake, but don't put an anchor down. After a while, you are going to find that uh, that current and those waves have taken you far, far away from where you want to go and where you need to be. Or if you really want a challenge, go out there when those uh, white caps are like seriously raging. Because maybe it'll knock your boat over and you'll be in the water and you realize this certainly is not where I need to be. But that is what Paul is saying here, that when Christians are believing every doctrine that comes their way, they're like a, children, like a child that believes uh, wholeheartedly, or they're like a boat that just gets blown about by any wind that comes along. Folks, we can't be like that. We have to be discerning. We have to be in the Word. Um, some of us will trust everything we hear on the radio or see on TBN or, or watch on YouTube. It's children without an anchor. We see an emotionally driven worship service on YouTube where there's thousands of people and, and young people with their, their hands up in the air and crying, but the, the preacher gives such a heretical talk that to believe any of it would send anybody to hell. 1 John chapter 4, verse 1 says, Beloved, don't believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. Just because they claim to be Christian doesn't make them so. The Oxford uh, Dictionary uh, defines the word cunning as having or showing skill in achieving one's end by deceit or evasion. So what are we to do? Well, obviously we're to be in the Word. We need to stop being a, a mile wide and an inch deep. We need to be committed to growth. And Paul puts it this way in verse 15. He says, Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. Now, this term is often misunderstood. We look at this term as thinking, well, when we relate to people, we need to um, speak the words of truth and be gracious in it. Now, that's true, right? We need to, we need to do that. But that's not literally what Paul is saying here. The word um, speak is, um, it's a participle, but that really doesn't matter. So the, the word is um, uh, truthing is the word. Now that changes the meaning a little bit, doesn't it? As you are living out the truth, as you are truthing, this is what you are supposed to do. You might want to say, um, uh, rather, uh, truthing in love we are to grow up in, in every way. When we live in truth, we begin to be more like Jesus. When we are truthing, we grow up. When we are truthing, we are becoming the church that we are meant to be. And this is uh, true in our congregational life, especially in verse 15, uh, when he goes on to say that uh, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Growing spiritually 
helps us become who we are created to be as a body of believers. Friends, we need to grow. If there was a such thing as a, uh, a spiritual growth chart, um, what would it look? Would it look like you're on track? Would the weight and height be proportional for the amount of time that you have been uh, a Christian? How about our church? Are we more concerned with numerical growth than we are spiritual growth and spiritual depth? We have to grow up. You have to grow up. I have to grow up. Um, it is the responsibility of all of us to do this. My goal for this church is that in five, ten years from now, we would be grown to the point that any storm that would come and hit us as a church or individuals would not make us fall over like the tree in my front yard, but that we would stay strong, weathering anything that comes our way. Friends, we need to grow into Christ, and let's pray to that end.